Father, we do thank you for the great privilege of gathering as your people. We've sung of the greatness of your glory. That we will all be singing around your throne in that great picture of Revelation 4 through 5. We've sung of your grace. We've sung of your majesty and your power and your beauty. And all of these things we learn from your word as they are made alive and clear in our hearts by your spirit. And we pray that would be the case now as we once again look at this bleak picture of what the future holds for this present creation. The concentrated evil that will be present in the Antichrist and the kingdom he will rule over. And yet we praise you that that is not the end of the story. But for your people, the things we've sung of is the end of the story. Glory, righteousness, joy, peace, the wonder of never-ending worship in your presence. And we thank you that you have made us citizens of that kingdom. And we do ask you again that you would open our hearts to hear your voice, our Lord Jesus, in your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, 15. Now, as we come into this next section, which will be verses 15 through 28, we move into a new period, a new phase of these end times that Jesus has been unfolding for us. A new phase of the final days, which Jesus has described as birth pangs, as birth pangs. This is a time of great distress, of destruction, deceptions, displays of unified and universal wickedness that the world to this point has yet to know or experience. Indeed, the world knows and has known and endured evil from wicked leaders and wicked rulers throughout its histories, rulers whose wickedness was matched only by their arrogance. To name just a couple of those, in recent history, names you'll be familiar with, Benito Mussolini, Prime Minister of Italy in 1922 was friends with Hitler, accompanied him and worked alongside with him through much of the destruction that he enacted during World War II. But he said this in, in, in reference to himself. He said he is the, His Excellency Benito Mussolini, head of government, deuce, that is Italian for leader, of fascism, the founder of the empire. That's a pretty exalted title for oneself. And yet that's how he thought of himself. He considered himself to be the first marshal of the empire and he hated Christianity and he routinely mocked God. Then there is the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. The long and grandiose title he assigned to himself in 1977 is this. His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal Al-Hadiji, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, VC, DSO, MC, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa. Again, quite an exalted title for oneself. Many of these could be added from secular history, but it's scripture who gives us that gives us the clearest and most dramatic examples of this sort of arrogance, this sort of satanically inspired self-delusion and grandiose views of self. 
Two of these examples are in the Old Testament. And in these passages, God gives us a glimpse, as it were, behind the mask of these rulers to note the satanic influence and the spiritual darkness that is truly behind their power, their reigns. The first of these is in Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, I'm just going to briefly mention these. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet Isaiah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, gives a look behind the wickedness of the king of Babylon. So while talking about the king of Babylon who wrecked such destruction on the people of God and who had such a massive empire at that time, he gives what I believe the prophet Isaiah does is a look behind that particular king while still referring to him, but looking behind him and looking at the power that is the influence of his reign. He says this in Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 10 or 11. He says, Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as beneath you, and worms are your covering. And then he says something interesting in verse 12. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Verse 13, you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Very likely there, a reference to the satanic influence behind him. And for a moment, getting behind the the visible king of Babylon and looking to Satan who was really behind him who scripture would indicate was exalted among the angels of God the cherubs of God and yet because arrogance and pride was found in his heart was cast out of heaven there's another example given in Ezekiel chapter 28 Ezekiel chapter 28 here Ezekiel is addressing the prophet of the king or the king of Tyre And he says of the king of Tyre, beginning in verse 12, or actually beginning in verse 11, he says again, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lament over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the toicus, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Again, the prophet here addressing the king of Tyre, but looking behind him, the satanic power behind him, Satan, who had received such honor and had such power and yet 
cast it aside because of his arrogance and was cast out of the presence of God. The point is simply this. Behind the rulers that have dominated the scene of secular history, behind the rulers that have wrecked such havoc not only on the people of God, but the people of this earth with violence and destruction and blasphemy, are in fact instruments not only in the hand of God to fulfill His purpose, but here, instruments in the hand of the evil one who is always taking the opportunity to conquer and to kill and to destroy. However, as bad as these rulers were, and as evil and as satanic and violent as they were, none compares to the concentrated evil that will reside in the coming ruler known as the Antichrist. This one will epitomize hatred toward God, Hatred toward God's people and particularly hatred towards the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Now this morning we will begin to look at the arrogance, the atrocities and the unparalleled afflictions this evil one will bring. And we'll be doing this particularly through the lens of Daniel chapter 9. Read with me, beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 24. We'll actually read down to verse 28, but we're going to focus on verse 15 this morning. Listen to Jesus' description. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather." Go back up to verse 15 of Matthew 24. Jesus marks this transition with these words. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. As I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus is advancing now the the description of the characteristics of the end of the age, which he mentioned at the end of verse 14. It is an intensified period of suffering and of wickedness, which he identifies in verse 21 as the great tribulation. The great tribulation. Again, after verse 14, after describing the world of violence and natural disasters and spiritual deception in verses 4 through 13, he now ends in verse 14 with those ominous words, and then the end will come. 
In other words, everything we've covered so far and everything that he's mentioned so far with all of its destruction, with all of its suffering was only the beginning of the birth pangs. The full experience of the labor pains is now being described by him. There is the suffering that will come not only upon the world but more specifically upon the nation of Israel. He begins with saying, therefore, therefore, again marking The transition. It is as if to say this. Therefore, since those things are not the full brunt of the coming tribulation, mark this event as that which will distinguish a period of greater suffering. Now note first then the arrogance that is marked in this passage and description of this coming one. Now what will mark then the transition of the full labor pains? Well, we just mentioned it. When you see... When you behold, when you witness the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And this is an ultimate display of arrogance and spiritual darkness that marks this final evil kingdom and evil one. It is his desecration here then of the temple. He is standing in the temple. Now what is this abomination of desolation? The phrase itself speaks of something that is detestable. Something that is abhorrent. Something that is provoking to the holy nature of God. And here it is something that is provoking to God and the means of great destruction and desolation and violence that is going to come to His people. Now there have been many suggestions as to, divide, as, uh, to try to define the specific, the specific thing that Jesus is referring to here. And these suggestions largely lie along the lines of the time period that one believes Jesus is speaking of. If he is speaking of 70 AD and the destruction of the temple that we've looked at many times, then this is a reference to the Roman sacrilege of the temple in 70 AD after it was destroyed by Titus Vespasian. For example, this is the most likely referent in the writings of Josephus to that event, if in, that, if in fact that is what Jesus was speaking to. Josephus gives this account. And now the Romans, upon the flight of the rebellious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, and of all the building around it, brought their ensigns to the temple and set them near its eastern gate, and there they did offer sacrifices to them, and there they did make Titus emperor with the greatest acclamations of joy. This was after he's entered the city. This is after the massive destruction that he had inflicted upon the people. This is after the destruction and the burning of the temple that they later came in and they put this provoking image in the temple area and worshipped it. However, I would suggest to you that this cannot be the event that Jesus is speaking of here. And let me give you at least two reasons. First of all, this event does not make sense of the rest of the markers of time that Jesus gives in verses 16 through 28. Since most of the destruction against Jerusalem had already happened by the time these soldiers came in and put that detestable image up in the temple area. Moreover, after that event, Josephus records that he, Titus, still gave some of the people who were remaining a time to surrender and to submit to the Roman rule, which does not at all fit the picture that Jesus gives here. A second reason. The destruction that followed that event 
could not fit Jesus' description in verse 21. For then, a marker of time, this is chronological here, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Which simply cannot be made to fit the events after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Indeed, these events that Jesus anticipates here are yet future of that event, future even to us. So we commend here then that Jesus is not talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., but an event yet future to that that will be the final experience of birth pains experienced by the world and particularly by the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. He gives a clue then to what answer, what he is speaking of back in verse 15. He says, when you see the abomination of desolations, notice the next phrase, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. In other words, in order to understand Jesus' statement, we have to understand Daniel the prophet and what he anticipated long before Jesus spoke these words. So let's turn there. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning there and the first part of our time next week there also. There are three places in the book of Daniel where Jesus or the prophet specifically mentions either this phrase or this same description. He mentions it in chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. In each of these, Daniel is anticipating a time of great destruction on the city of Jerusalem and the people of God. And yet in each of these, he's anticipating both what would come in the near future and what would come in the far future. Let's first read verses 24 through 27 and then we'll walk through them. Beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people... Let me back up here and say this is the angel of Gabriel who's answering a prayer of Daniel that was given in the first part of the chapter about the history of his people, the future of his people. Okay, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now this prophecy of Daniel contains what is often known of as the 70th week of Daniel. In other words, this final week of period, this final unit of time that is to come upon this present earth. 
As I mentioned before, Daniel is receiving an answer to his prayer by the angel Gabriel. He said back in verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and understanding, which is what we have and what we just read. And this insight and understanding then is concerning the future of the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. So look back at verse 24. Note what he says here. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed, have been sovereignly declared by God for your people and your holy city. In other words, this is not specifically a prophecy that directly addresses God's dealing with the Gentile nations. He did that in earlier chapters. Nor is it a prophecy that is directly concerning the building of, the institution of, or the life of what is known as the church. God is specifically laying out a plan concerning the Jewish nation. This is God's prophetic and sovereign plan for His people on this earth. Note also that he gives a definite period, 70 weeks. 70 weeks have been decreed, literally units of seven. Now Gabriel is not referring to a literal seven-day week here, but rather a prophetic week in which one day equals one year. Let me just make that clear to you on a couple of points. First of all, 490 days would make absolutely no sense in regards to this prophecy, or for God to accomplish the things that he mentioned. He's looking at the panorama, the complete picture, the full picture of God's plans for the nation of Israel. Nothing in 490 days fits that. So it would, absolutely, it would be meaningless if it were a literal reek. Secondly, Scripture has already established the one-day, one-year equation in the Old Testament. Just a couple of examples of that. Numbers 14, 34. There were 40 days are equal to the 40 years. The 40 days they wondered and looked at the land of Canaan and, uh, and but yet the people rejected it was then uh, by judgment of God made to be 40 years of which the people would be disciplined by wandering in the wilderness. The sabbatical rest every seven years mentioned in Leviticus and Deuteronomy was based on a seven-day week. In other words, these are then to be 490 years that God has planned for the rest of His people. The only other way to see this is that these are undefined periods of time, which again would make no sense of the rest of the passage. So the one day, one year is pretty much generally agreed upon. Let me know a second thing about these years though, and just put this in your back pocket, it'll be important later. The year here is equal to a 360-day year, not a 365-day year. Something that is made clear, for example, in the book of Revelation and at the end of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, where 1260 days equals 42 months, which would give us then a 360-day year. Now, what is he talking about here? What is he talking about? Well, look what he says. What's going to happen during this period of time? During this period of time, this 490 years, God has planned then for His people to put an end to the reign of sin and to establish His kingdom of righteousness. Look at verse 24 again. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most 
holy place. This is a comprehensive view of God's plans for the nation of Israel. Make a few observations here. The first three then are related to God's dealing with the sin of His people. And the second three are related to the fruit that would come or the results of this work of God in putting an end to transgression. Each of these are realized in part now, but will be fully realized in the future at His return. The first three, what does He say? Finish the transgression, make an end of sin, and make atonement for iniquity. When was that accomplished? It was accomplished at the cross. It was accomplished at the first appearing of Christ. Listen to this in Romans chapter 3. Speaking of Christ, whom God displayed publicly in verse 25 as a propitiation or a satisfaction in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is He talking about there? It's obvious. Every sin that was committed by an Old Testament saint was not yet atoned for throughout the Old Testament. It was symbolically atoned for. Their faith in that symbolic atonement was a real faith and it was a real application of the future work of Christ. But yet, the sin had not yet been atoned for. Christ had not yet appeared. There was yet a future time that would happen. That is what Christ did, whom God publicly displayed on the cross as the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, as the one who would stand in the place of His people. Sin was then, and only then, atoned for by Christ. And it was atoned for not in part. It was not atoned for uh, partially, but completely and fully. It was a total atonement, a total sacrifice, uh, sacrifice for the sins of God's people. He's referring there to then the atonement of Christ. And yet, though that is a reality for God's people, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet the full experience of that, the full reality of our adoption as sons, the full reality of our redemption is still yet a future date. He says, secondly then, of the, the, the results of that, is that he would bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. Again, he came to offer the kingdom to his people. He came to offer what was promised by the prophets, and yet they rejected him, and the kingdom was set aside to a future date, the full establishment of it. It still awaits that time. It still awaits a time of refreshing. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. And just listen, you don't have to turn there. Speaking here about the Jews, he says this. Acts chapter 3 verse 19. Actually verse 17, he says, I know, brethren, now brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, has thus been fulfilled. Therefore repent and return. Why? So that your sins may be wiped away, and in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. They're still waiting for that time of refreshment. They're still waiting for what the disciples themselves asked Jesus about after they had spent 40 days with him, after the resurrection, are you restoring the kingdom now? Jesus said it's not for you to know those times and epochs. 
did not deny that the kingdom would be established, but only that it would not happen at that moment. This is essentially what Daniel is anticipating in Daniel chapter 9. There is this time when sin would be atoned for, and that has happened. There is a time when everlasting righteousness would be brought in, and that is yet to be experienced by His people. So he's anticipating what God has done in Christ and what he is still yet to do. This is the complete panorama of the history of the people of Israel. Notice secondly that God divides the 70 weeks then into more specific units of time. Look what he says in verse 25. You are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Here, making a total of 69 weeks, which he sets off from the last week. In this first 69 weeks, he divides into two. One week and 62 weeks. It begins with the rebuilding of Jerusalem and it ends with the death of the Messiah in verse 26 when he will be cut off. So what period of time is he referring to here? What period of time is he referring to here? I would suggest to you that the clock for this first seven weeks, or this first 49 years, begins, as he says, with an issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This is almost certainly a reference to the decree of the Persian king Artaxerxes in 449 BC, which granted and even assigned for the Jews to go back and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. There were other decrees that were given that were a part of the return of the Jews back into the land, the reestablishing of the temple and the reestablishing of their worship. Cyrus gave an order for them in 537 B.C., you remember Cyrus mentioned in Isaiah chapter 52, in the beginning of or Isaiah chapter 52. He gave that order for them in 537 B.C. to return to the land. Artaxerxes issued another order in 458 B.C., Ezra 7.10. But it was the specific decree in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 11 in 445 B.C. that dealt with the building of the walls and the infrastructure of the city, which is the reference point of Daniel. So we should see this then as a decree by Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2 for the rebuilding of the walls and the infrastructure of the city. The completion of this work, Daniel says, would involve, would be the plaza and the moat. But he also notes here that it would be even in times of distress. Even in times of distress. Which precisely accords with the opposition and the difficulties that Nehemiah faced and the other leaders there in Nehemiah 4 through 6 as they sought to rebuild the walls. It was indeed in times of distress and with much difficulty. He then gives a second period of time, 62 weeks or 434 years after the completion of that first week and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the walls, the moat, etc. He says it's after this 62 weeks that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. He will be cut off and have nothing. Clearly a reference here to his death. And this is absolutely amazing. Now I won't go over all the details of the numbers. I can recommend to you things to read if you want to do that. But the 7 and the 62 weeks added together gives us a total of 69 weeks or 483 days or 483 years. 
When these years are calculated by the 360-day prophetic year that I mentioned earlier, then we arrive at a date of 30 A.D., which is widely accepted as the time of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21. In other words, he's exactly prophesying here the time that the Messiah would come, that he would make his appearance for his people, that he would come to accomplish the things that he said to make an end of atonement, to make, or to make atonement for iniquity, the end of sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness. But he makes a marker here. He says it is after the 62 weeks, it's after the 62 weeks that the Messiah will be cut off, cut off, after he appeared into the temple area on the praises of his people, after he came in in this final week of his life to be crucified and killed by the leadership. It was after that that he was cut off. Jesus himself had told his disciples many times that this was coming. They weren't anticipating it. It was not their view of the Messiah But Jesus told them repeatedly he had to be rejected by the leaders. He had to be killed and he had to be raised on the third day. Note what else he says. Not only will he be cut off, this Messiah, but he will have nothing. He will have nothing. What does he mean by that? This refers to his rejection by the nation and abandonment by his disciples. He indeed had nothing in terms of companionship in terms of the glory that could have been his by his people at that time. He was cut off and the kingdom had not yet been established on earth. And he was left to die alone. Rejected by his nation, rejected by his closest companions, and even at the crucifixion, rejected by his father. What else is going to happen? After the Messiah will be cut off, he will have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Notice what he says here. It is the people of the prince, not the prince himself. It is not yet that final one who's going to wreak this havoc. It is the people of him. This is a prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when the Romans swept in like a flood and wrecked a total destruction on the temple and the city. A total destruction. They wiped it away. Who are the people of the prince? These then would be the Roman Empire at that time. There will be a revived Roman Empire at the end of days. This is the same kind of people, the same kind of people destroyed bent on the destruction of God's people. And that is precisely what they did. As Jesus had told them earlier, after his indictments in Matthew 23, that destruction was indeed to come upon that place. Not one stone would be left upon another. And he says, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. This is what Luke 21, 24 refers to as the time of the Gentiles. And indeed, that has been the history of the city of Jerusalem ever since its destruction. In 637 AD, it fell to the Muslims. In 1099 AD, it fell to the Crusaders. 
Then later it went back into Muslims' hands. And until World War I, there was very little Jewish presence in the city. And even today, a mosque of the Islamic religion sits on the spot where the Holy of Holies was for both Herod's temple and Solomon's temple. It is indeed being overrun by the ungodly. And yet there is a greater devastation still in the future. Still in the future. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. This is then the final week. The final week that is set apart from the 69 weeks, the 7 and the 62. He says in verse 27, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Which is, again, seven years. This is why the tribulation period is referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. It is the final seven years that God has determined for this earth and the fulfillment and completion of His plans for the nation of Israel. Now, there are two basic questions that we have to ask up front. When does this happen and who is the He? Who is the He of verse 27 and when is this going to happen? Let's take the first one. When does this take place? Well, again, Gabriel is referring to a time in the future that is yet to happen by the mere fact, first of all, that none of these events can be made to fit any historical event with any kind of realistic accuracy from the time of the destruction of the temple until now. None of these events could fit that. It certainly can't be referring to Solomon's temple. That temple has already been destroyed. Daniel is referring to a period much after that. This can't fit any events that have happened after the destruction of the second temple or Herod's temple. And the seven-year period cannot fit anywhere into the life of Christ. Indeed, the crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem are already mentioned to be after the 69th week and before the 70th week. Moreover, Jesus still looks to these events as future in 2415, which is why we're in Daniel right now. Now, there was no need then to mention this gap between verse 26 and verse 27. Some might protest here, then what about this entire nearly 2,000 years of God building His kingdom among the Gentile nations, this time known as the church? And the answer is very simple. This is a prophecy that is dealing with God's works towards His people, the nation of Israel. There was no need to mention that gap. That is not the focus. These final days and the final plans for the nation of Israel who has currently been set aside for the time of the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in is still future. It's still future. That is the focus both here of Daniel 9.27 and we have submitted Christ in Matthew chapter 24. So he's looking for a time that is still yet even future to us. The second question then is he, this. Who is the he? Who is the he? Some say that it is the Messiah. Some say that it is the prince to come. Who is it? I would suggest to you that it is, must be seen as the prince who is to come. The one who is the embodiment of the same wickedness displayed by the people in verse 26. Who will destroy the city and the sanctuary? It's one who will come during a revived Roman-like empire. Let me suggest to you this. The prince to come is the closest antecedent. That's fancy grammar words to say. It's the nearest 
The nearest individual before he uses he, back up in verse 26, the prince that is to come. It would be the most natural way to take that as the one he's referring to. But even more importantly than that, there is absolutely no record of Christ even making a covenant for one week with his people or any people. The only covenant that Christ made was the new covenant, which is in his blood, which we remember in the Lord's table every other week here at church. Moreover, this one who is to come, who makes this covenant, is going to break the covenant After three and a half years, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. He will be marked by abominations. This cannot be referring to Christ. It simply cannot be referring to Christ. He is one who destroys. This is one who will deceive. This is one who will break his promises. Indeed, it's a complete destruction he will bring A complete destruction. In fact, Daniel has already mentioned this back in chapter 7. I'll just read it to you. We'll be coming back to here in the future weeks. But he says this, speaking of this one future king. He says, He will speak out arrogant things against the Most High, wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law. They will be given into His hand for how long? A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years of this coming one. Now let's look at the characteristics then of this coming prince and the covenant he will make. And again, this sets the context then for what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Note first, that this covenant will be a covenant of peace with the Jewish people. It will be a covenant of peace with the Jewish people. Now that implies off the on one level, then that this will be a person, the one who's to do this, will be in a position of power and prominence that will give him the political and military influence he needs to do this. Indeed, again, he's described again in verse 24 of Matthew 7, Out of this kingdom will come ten kings will arise, another will arise after them. It will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. In other words, this is one who has risen to the top of political and military power at that time. It will be a covenant that establishes political and military peace between Israel and her Gentile enemies. Notice. This covenant that he makes with the week, uh, for a week comes when? After the destruction of the temple. The temple has already been destroyed. It's already been, he said in verse 26, made desolate. It's already been after a period of war over a period of time. And yet, and yet, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and to grain offerings. In other words, in order for him to break this covenant, it has to be a covenant that he made that allows them to have sacrifices and grain offerings which will only be done in a temple, a rebuilt temple. If it's desolate in verse 26, then how are they making grain offerings in verse 27 unless it had been rebuilt? And it is directly Connected here to the covenant that will be made for one week. Indeed, 
this covenant will be considered by the Jews as a victory for peace and may even heighten messianic expectations, which is precisely what Christ is focusing on in Matthew chapter 24. Remember, we covered this, verse 5. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. We mentioned it will be a time where there are great wonders and signs given by these false prophets in accord with the ultimate false prophet. Revelation 13, we'll look at next week. In other words, this will be heightened messianic expectations which will make those kind of deceptions all the more convincing and all the more powerful, particularly at the beginning of this covenant. Notice, secondly, it's already been mentioned, this covenant will be initially one of peace, but it will be one of deception that he will break, as Daniel says, in the middle of the week. So after three and a half years, or times, time, times, and half a time, he will put a stop to sacrifice. A stop to sacrifice. That means temple worship, that before this time, this stop is put to it, was active. They were engaged in it. Again, it requires that a temple be standing and the priesthood reinstituted after it's been destroyed. Now, it is this prophecy, incidentally, this prophecy and others, that have led dispensationalists to maintain consistently, though some details differ, but consistently that the nation of Israel will be a nation again and that the temple will be rebuilt. That is a ridiculous claim before 1947. And yet, in 1947, Israel did become a nation state. A nation state. And since that time has been desirous, or parts of the nation that is there, desirous of rebuilding the temple in the land. And since that time has had an increasing hostility against it from the surrounding nations. The only protection to Israel at this point, besides God's, has been the nation of the USA, the United States of America. This would then suggest that This is precisely then what we would expect. Precisely what we would expect. Notice the third thing here though. However, the fact that he puts an abrupt stop to it indicates not only that it is in contrast to the covenant that he made, in other words, unexpected, going against what the Jews would have expected, it is one that happens with momentous shock and betrayal of Israel. Those with whom he made the covenant, he will completely turn upon. And we won't look at this this week. In 2 Thessalonians 2 4, it is suggested, I would suggest that it is the, in uh, correlation with the one, the lawless one, the man of lawlessness, and who set himself in the temple and declare that he is to be worshiped as God. This one will be marked by incredible blasphemy, wickedness, he says in Daniel. Not only will he put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, but it will be on the wing of abominations. The wing of abominations. An incredible statement. And again, this is the first reference in Daniel that links to what Jesus was anticipating in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Now the general idea here is that he will be marked by incredible blasphemy. Incredible blasphemy and violence. Particularly against God's people. 
Again, this comes after he breaks the covenant. And this is the revelation of his blasphemous nature and his hatred against the Jewish people that to that point had been concealed. It had been unknown. And yet now it's with sudden and dramatic intensity. And I would suggest that is why Jesus, with no introduction, immediately gives that as the sign. Immediately gives that as the sign. There's no anticipation of it. There's no way that they're prepared for it. It goes against everything that they're expecting when this abominable revelation is made. He is turned against them and will then enact violence. Refers to a blasphemous image, again, directly opposed to the God of Israel. The term abomination was regularly in the Old Testament assigned to the idols of the nations, those false gods that were set in opposition and defiance of the one true God. Here it is that only concentrated. Now while this was foreshadowed in the abominations of Antiochus Epiphanes, and we'll discuss him next week, and the reference that Jesus is referring to as far as his life and dastardly deeds. While it was foreshadowed in Antiochus, That is not who Daniel is speaking of here. Again, these are events that are yet future after the temple has already been destroyed. The abominations of the Antichrist are going to be far worse than anything that they have experienced historically, even at the hands of Antiochus. Those are recorded for us in Revelation 13. Let's note fourthly here to finish up this prophecy. The breaking of this covenant and revealing of his complete hatred of the God of the Jews, the Antichrist will then unleash an unprecedented reign of terror on the Jewish nation. Look at what he says. One who makes desolate. One who makes desolate. In other words, the treachery of his deception will be followed by the arrogance of his blasphemous abominations and then incredible destruction. It is an increasing intensity progression of his wickedness. And this precisely, again, follows the timeline of Jesus in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation, then flee to the mountains. Again, not in 70 AD. The temple was destroyed. They'd already experienced all of that. Yes, there was destruction to follow, but it did not overdo the destruction they had already experienced. When you see that, flee to the mountains. Because there is a time of desolation coming which is unparalleled in the history of the world. Verse 21 of Matthew 24. Again, anticipated by Antiochus, Epiphanes IV, anticipated by the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus Vespasian in 70 AD, but both of these pale in comparison to the desolation that will come at the hands of the Antichrist in this future time. Note one last point that Daniel makes here. How long will this desolation last? It'll last even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. In other words, it will last until this specific one who causes desolation is himself destroyed, is himself taken off of the scene. Daniel does not give the details in this passage, but states it as a certainty, as a final event, as a complete destruction that is coming, as a destruction that will be total and will put an end of this individual against the people of God. 
Again, cannot refer to 70 AD because Titus was not completely destroyed. He continued to reign after the destruction. In fact, he was, as we read earlier in Josephus' account, crowned emperor following after his father. This cannot be referring to him. This is something that is yet to happen in the future. Moreover, it is after this destruction that the second half of what Jesus promised is, will come about, that the establishment of righteousness for the nation of Israel, which is again assumed by Daniel, have to happen after this event. After this event. And it will not happen then until the second return of Christ after he destroys the Antichrist and establishes his kingdom on earth over a regenerate and a restored Israel. Again, let me reference you back to Daniel chapter 7. He says this, After that he will, this one who is coming will wreck destruction. He says in verse 26, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. He will be made desolate. As he says in chapter 9, verse 27. Then, in verse 27, then, after he has been made desolate, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Again, one is going to come who's going to be an embodiment of evil. He's going to wreck destruction that has yet to have been experienced on the earth, after he has wrecked that destruction, he will himself be destroyed by God. Does this sound familiar? It's precisely what Christ is talking about in Matthew 24. You're going to see this, you're going to experience desolation, and then what? Then Christ will return. It's exactly what we see in the book of Revelation. This Antichrist will arise. There will be a unique ministry that he has and worship that he receives from the world when he, the image receives life by the false prophet, one of the signs in which he will then turn and kill and put to death all those who do not receive the mark of the beast. There will be an established kingdom again, a confederacy of nations that will be united under a leader in their hatred of God's people. And then what happens? Revelation 19. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head are many diadems. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows but himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the word of God. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following with, on, with him on white horses. What happens? I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What happened? The beast was seized the false prophet was seized and they were both thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds of the air were filled with their flesh. 
This is precisely what Christ is anticipating. This is precisely the picture that God gives us. It is a time that is yet to come, and it is a time of great destruction against the world and the people of God. It is time decreed by God. Now, we're going to look at this more next week and look at the other two references in Daniel, but let me end with at least these three thoughts with a few brief reminders of how then are we to process this in our own life. Some of these are repetitive. In other words, it is, it is the constant way that we are to understand and apply the prophetic picture, the reality of future judgment to our lives. As Second Peter said, that we might be godly in our character, knowing that all of these things are to be destroyed. So first of all, though, however, is this. The first reminder is we need to understand the times. We need to understand the times. We need to understand the spirit of the age in which we live. We need to view world events not through the lens of political commentators, but through the biblical lens that God has given us, this prophetic lens. We are not left in the dark. We understand that there is going to be a certain arrangement of the world, a certain increase of wickedness, a certain increase of lawlessness and deception that is to come. We thank God for times of reprieve. We thank God for the revivals that He's brought. We thank God for the continued work that he does and yet he himself has told us that ultimately it is evil that will prevail in this world that will be then judged by him we need to understand our times and have a gospel focus how are we to understand what's happening in our own country I think all of us that would submit that we as a nation have had a conscience hardened by God in judgment is demonstrated day after day in the news. You wonder, how can these atrocities happen? Well, the same way that they've happened in world history and the same way that we see them happening now. When we have a culture in which there is no moral outcry over 60 million babies, I think the figure is, since the time abortion was legalized, over the harvesting of body parts of babies, and there is not a moral outcry in the nation, that, beloved, is a nation that has been given over to its sin. It has a conscience hardened by God, has received a deluding influence by Him. We understand that. That's exactly what he said was going to come. It's exactly what he said was going to come. There's no other way to understand the callousness and the hardness of the human heart where these things can be discussed with almost a flippancy and total self-absorption that can compare only to the Nazism that we've known in our own generations recently. It helps us to understand the arrangement of world events which are consistent with this prophetic picture. Israel is at the center of a Middle East that hates them and wants them destroyed. We have our own nation who is aligning herself more with the enemies of Israel than with Israel herself. How are we to understand that? Because God has told us these things would happen. Moreover, the rise of Russia and China and other nations are precisely the picture of powers from the north and from the east and the west that provide the context for the Antichrist victories and alliances. It gives us then a biblical lens through which we understand world events. One has said it this way. 
I quote, and I agree. As the modern Satan-inspired alliances of Russia and many Arab nations continues to grow, it becomes evident that the prophetic picture of the end time is unfolding. When that threat to her becomes extreme, Israel will seek security and protection from a powerful ally by making a pact with the European Confederacy to the rest, which also will be satanically energized. Indeed, What we see is what we would expect. We are not left in the dark. We are not left in confusion. It does not mean we accept it. We don't confront it as we are able. But it does mean that the evil kingdom is coming. Ours is to be faithful to the end. Finally, and we'll look at this more next week, but we can rejoice that we have the freedoms that we do and we can enjoy them while we have them and we should enjoy them not for our own self-pleasure but to take the opportunities for the advancement of the kingdom that we uniquely have at this time. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your sovereign hand. Indeed, Daniel said, it is a time that has been decreed. It has been determined. As terrible as it is, As heart-wrenching as it is at times, it is nonetheless a part of your sovereign plan and you are sovereign over evil. You are sovereign over the Antichrist. You have determined it precisely. Help us to be faithful, to live soberly in this world, to delight in the kingdom that is ours and that is coming. We thank you for giving us citizenship in it through the cost of of the death of your son and his suffering. We thank you for the life we've received through his resurrection and by the Spirit. And it is in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.